This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, we'll be looking today at the first part of chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 21 of Acts 2. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that was poured out that Pentecost day that still <clears throat> indwells and comforts and strengthens and illuminates your church, that you would make this word clear to us, that we would understand the work 
that has begun that day but continues to this day, the work of proclaiming to the world the redemption that comes in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would write his word and write his hope on the hearts of all gathered here and that we might bear witness to his name even to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every four years in these United States, we have a presidential election. You know that, and you know we're already in another one of those years, and the election cycle is heating up, and you're probably wondering why on earth I'm bringing this up here. Already been hearing enough about that lately. Well, I mention it simply to uh, use the process as a bit of an illustration. See, we elect a president every four years on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And if a new president is elected, he doesn't take office right away. There's a couple of months that pass before he actually does, and the old president will still be in office for a time. That doesn't mean that the new president-elect isn't doing anything. He's building his cabinet, he's planning the transition to his new administration and making all sorts of preparations. But although the election decides who the president is going to be, the president doesn't actually become the president until his inauguration, which is held on January 20th after the election. What we have seen so far in the book of Acts is sort of like the time from the election to the inauguration of a president, only instead of establishing a government, this is something much more important. This is the establishment of Christ's church. See, when Jesus ascended, he told his disciples what was going to happen, what they were going to do. It was all spelled out for them. They were going to receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But it didn't start right away. There was the business they had to take care of. So the disciples committed to prayer and they were joined by other followers of Jesus in a sort of proto-church, a church before the church, together praying and learning from the word. That's what we have seen over the last couple of weeks looking at Acts 1. They also selected a replacement apostle for Judas, who had fallen from the ministry by his transgression and died. So what we've seen so far is sort of like that post-election, pre-inauguration stage of a presidential administration. So today, we are coming to the inauguration of the church. While we have seen the glimpses and the glimmers and the preparations for what's to come, at Pentecost, the New Testament church officially begins. That work of witness commences, one that continues even down to this very day. So we will look at this inauguration of the church today in three points. First, there is a descent in verses 1 through 4. As was promised, the Holy Spirit descends. He comes down and fills God's people. Second, there is distribution. In verses 5 through 13, we see how many and what sorts of people from what sorts of places receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. And third, we see declaration. In verses 14 through 21, we see the introduction of Peter's Pentecost sermon 
where he begins to explain in light of the scriptures what is happening and what it means. So dissent, distribution, and declaration are our points for this morning. First, we see dissent in verses 1 through 4. So everything we have seen before in Acts has prepared for and pointed to this moment. We see that the day of Pentecost comes. Now, most people, at least in our country today, if you ask them about Pentecost, if they knew anything at all, they would probably be thinking about or talking about this event recorded here in Acts 2 and the day's significance for the Christian church. But Pentecost didn't actually start there. It was one of the Old Testament feasts that was prescribed for the nation of Israel. Specifically, it was the feast of the first fruits. So the crops that had been planted in the spring were beginning to come in. It was essentially a harvest festival. It would be something like how we celebrate Thanksgiving in the fall. It'd be earlier in the year because Israel has a milder climate and a longer growing season than we do, but it carried that sort of significance. It was a festival of Thanksgiving to God for his hand of provision throughout the year. And of course, when we think about this in terms of being a harvest festival, we recognize that there is symbolism in play here. While Pentecost did not begin in the New Testament, it there comes to its highest and fullest expression. Because the temporal harvest celebrated in the Old Testament, for whatever else they were, God's blessing and provision of food and crops and animals and such to his people, pointed to the great spiritual harvest that was to come with Christ in the building of his church in the New Testament. Old Testament Pentecost is a type and shadow of New Testament Pentecost, this specific Pentecost in Acts 2. Now when Pentecost comes, we see that all the followers of Christ were together. They were all with one accord. They were in peace and fellowship and unity and harmony together in one place. Though they were all still predominantly ethnically Jewish and still observing Jewish customs, as they would continue to do for a time, the Christians were beginning to take on their own distinct existence and activity and identity as a people, such that even when they celebrate the Jewish festivals, they did them together as Christians. They're also carrying out still Jesus' command that he wait that the disciples and those with him wait in Jerusalem for what is to come. They were still heeding that command. But now that the day of Pentecost comes, what Jesus promised comes to pass. There is a sound from heaven and a mighty rushing wind that comes through the house. Now, if you live around here, I don't have to explain mighty rushing wind to you. But there is some important symbolism for the people gathered. In both the Hebrew language of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same. In the Hebrew, it's ruah, and then in the Greek, it's pneuma, but they both mean wind and they both mean spirit. So this powerful rushing wind means that the spirit is coming in a new powerful way. 
This correlation is not accidental. While the Holy Spirit is a divine person, the third person of the Trinity, as we confessed in our creed, the Spirit is revealed here and revealed in other places in Scripture as a wind, as a breath. Jesus said in John 3.8 when he spoke to Nicodemus, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now also, Jesus' followers were promised a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a filling with the Holy Spirit in the prophecies of John the Baptist and others. Now we can think about this in terms of breath. Breath fills us physically. We breathe in, you know, our lungs inflate, and it gives us life physically. When God created man... He gave man the breath of life. It was something distinct and particular given to man. Man was given spirits and was given that from God. And so man is not strictly physical or material, not strictly body. Man is body and soul. Man has a spirit, an immaterial component. Now the Holy Spirit is invisible. He is spirit. He does make some particular visible and physical manifestations like this wind and this fire here in Acts 2. And this wind does fill the whole house. Again, we all know what harsh wind is like, but imagine if you know we get some of the winds we do and then it just suddenly like your walls don't exist and it comes ripping through your house. That's not something you would want to happen, but that would be the kind of thing that this would be. This rush of wind finds them in the house. It shows that it's not a usual wind. There's something special and something supernatural about it. And the Spirit manifests in these tongues of fire, as we see in verse 3. When John the Baptist had previously addressed the disciples on this topic... He told them that Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He did that in Matthew 3.11 and in Luke 3.16. So John prophesied that Jesus would do it. And then Jesus had promised them that he would do it, even just previously in Acts 1. Now he does it. This fire manifests as tongues, and yet it's not tongues from out of the mouth as we would think as though these people gathered were speaking, but it's tongues of fire that rests on their head, tongues of something from outside of them that is coming to them, that is speaking to them. Now Guy Waters, he comments on this passage here, and he notes that just as John the Baptist prophesied this baptism with fire in Luke 3.16, in the next verse, Luke 3.17 he then immediately described Christ's work of judgment, him coming with a winnowing fork in his hand to separate the wheat from the shaft, to separate that which belongs to God from those who are not his and those who will be destroyed. So something about this fire coming is, to, is showing it is displaying an aspect of judgment. You know, the final judgment of the earth will be a great fire that consumes the earth. And yet, this fire comes upon Christ's people, but it does not harm them. It does not consume them. 
Those who belong to Christ, those who are the people of God, need not fear his judgment when it comes. It will not consume them. So we have these tongues of fire, but then also in verse 4, we see tongues of a different sort. We see languages. Now there's something very important to note here about these tongues. The text, as I read, it says other tongues. It doesn't say new tongues or unknown and mysterious tongues. They speak actual languages, though one's not their own. This brings us to our second point. After descent, we come to distribution in verses 5 through 13. The reason for this speaking of tongues and also the reason we know that these tongues are other languages is because of what we see in verses 5 and 6. We see that there is dwelling in Jerusalem, at least temporarily dwelling there for the feast, devout Jews from every nation under heaven as well as Gentile proselytes, Gentile converts. Now here it's helpful to look a little bit at the history and the state of the Jewish people at this time in the first century. While there were still many that lived in their ancestral homeland in Judea and Galilee and those surrounding areas, throughout their history prior to this, the Jews had throughout the Old Testament and even after the Old Testament, before the New Testament, been conquered and scattered many times. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., they actually removed most of the Jews from that land and scattered them all over their empire. Most of them never returned. A few stayed behind. They would intermarry with the pagans that were introduced to the land, which was a forbidden practice, those would be the Samaritans. And Lord willing, as we move on in Acts, we'll hear much more about the Samaritans. But so many of the Jews from the northern kingdom were displaced from the land never to return. Then when the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C., there was a large group that had fled to Egypt beforehand. A lot of them stayed there. They formed a large Jewish community down in Egypt. The prophet Jeremiah talked about that group. There was also mass deportation to Babylon. Now under Cyrus, during the Persian Empire, which came later, many of those returned, but not all did. Some stayed in Babylon, some dispersed from there to further points of the earth. And there would be other invasions and conquests after the closing of the Old Testament canon. There was the Greek conquest of Alexander the Great. There was the Roman conquest, and in each of these waves of conquest, there was people movement, there was population, Jewish population, being dispersed all over the world. Now it would be in this time that the synagogues came to be. Because these Jews scattered all over the world couldn't go to the temple regularly, they would set up these meeting houses in the places that they were. And then if the Jews in dispersion did come back, it would often be rare. It would be maybe once a year. They couldn't come back for all the feasts to Jerusalem. They'd pick one. They'd bring all their sacrifices and offerings for the year for whichever festival they picked. Now, because the Jews were scattered and founding synagogues all over the place, it also meant that they were making foreign converts, these proselytes 
is described here in this text. People from the Gentile nations who would come to embrace the Jewish faith would want to worship their God. And so these converts too, these Gentile God-fearers, would also make pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the feasts. And so all of that is in the background when we come to this Pentecost. These Jews and these Gentile converts are from the dispersion all over the world. And they have come to Jerusalem at this time by the provision and providence of God. You get all these people gathered from all over the world to be there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls on his people. Now, another aspect of this dispersion of the Jews is that they had in certain ways assimilated into the places they lived, and this would include in their languages. Many Jews in dispersion learned and spoke the languages of the places they lived, and these converts would have been born, would have been raised, would have primarily spoken other languages as well besides Hebrew. In fact, the Hebrew language over time, over history, would decline. By the time of the 19th century, the 19th century AD, the Hebrew language was all but lost until the Zionist movement brought it back. But all of that to say the dispersion Jews were a very linguistically diverse group, as well as these Gentile proselytes that they made. And yet, isn't it something that God, by his hand of providence, by his hand of sovereignty over all things, brings all these people from all over the world speaking all these different languages to Jerusalem just in time for what was to happen at Pentecost? This is not an accident. But what this also does is explain why the Spirit empowered the Christians at Pentecost to speak and understand other languages. People filled by the Holy Spirit are suddenly able to speak coherently and fluently in languages they don't know and understand other languages that they wouldn't know. Now, why is that important? Well, they needed to understand each other, but a modern application of this is what is not happening here at Pentecost is what the Pentecostals in our day practice, which is the speaking of some sort of unknown mystery language. No, these are real languages spoken and understood and recognized as such. What's happening here, it would be like if all of a sudden I started speaking Mandarin Chinese. I don't know Mandarin Chinese at all. I might know a few menu items from restaurants, but that would be the extent of it. And yet, I start speaking Mandarin Chinese, and miraculously, some of you are able to understand me speaking Mandarin Chinese, or some of you would be speaking Russian to each other, or French, or pick whatever other language. This is what was happening at Pentecost. Suddenly, all these people who had no business knowing these other languages were both speaking and understanding these languages, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, this gets people's attention. See, Jesus' followers at the time were predominantly Galileans. They would have been recognized by the language and, Gal and the language and dialect of Galilee. And yet all of a sudden, these Galileans are speaking and understanding languages of other countries they never would have been to, would have had no business knowing. 
So then imagine you're at the feast as one of these pilgrims from one of these other countries. Maybe you're one of the only people from your country at the feast. And suddenly you hear off in the distance, somebody is speaking in that language that you know. That's going to get your attention. You're going to want to see what's going on and who's doing that. You know, it would be like, say you went to a country where you don't know the language at all, and then you hear somebody speaking English. That's going to get your attention. It's like, oh, they're speaking English. You're probably going to even stop and talk to that person because, hey, at least then you've got somebody you can talk to finally. And so that causes this multitude to form. People notice and they gather around to find out what's going on. Why are all these languages from all over the world being spoken and understood here? So all these Jews and all these converts from all over the world take notice. Because these Galileans shouldn't be speaking what they are. We even get here in the text a list of all the various nations represented. I don't have time to go through the geography of all of them, but just in summary, all these different peoples and nations, they're from the north, the south, the east, the west, near and far, all over the known world at the time. All gathered in Jerusalem. But this speech, this sudden miraculous outburst of languages, is not merely conversational, it has content. What they are speaking in these languages and what everyone is hearing in their native language are the wonderful works of God. They're speaking of who God is and what he has done. Particularly as these are Christians, they're speaking the works of Christ and his salvation, his redemption. And all are hearing it, many for the first time ever. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's just ready to receive it. First, we see there is some confusion. The scene is clearly not what people were expecting to see that day. And some are asking questions, as we see in verse 12. They're asking Whatever could this mean? What is going on? This doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you walked in on such a scene like this, you probably wouldn't really understand it either. But then we see others that are more skeptical and cynical. Verse 13, this sudden outburst of strange speaking causes them to conclude that the Christians are full of new wine. They've been enjoying the festivities a little too hard, and they are drunk. Well, given these new developments and how they are causing some confusion and controversy, someone needs to explain what is going on. And someone does. And this brings us to our third point. After dissent and distribution, we come to declaration in verses 14 through 21. So Peter stands up with the other disciples, and he begins to speak. Now, this is the second time we have seen this in Acts. Last week in chapter 1, Peter got up to speak from Scripture and address the matter of Judas's vacancy. So Peter has taken something of a first among equals role among the disciples now. This does not, contrary to Roman Catholic claims, mean that Peter is the Pope exercising sole leadership and authority over the church. 
Nothing resembling the Pope or the papacy would emerge for hundreds of years after this until the Middle Ages. If Peter was anything, he might be considered like the moderator of the session or the moderator of the presbytery. Great time to say that because ours isn't here today. But Peter was an apostle. He was an elder like the rest of them. In fact, in 1 Peter, Peter actually writes of himself as an elder. So he's sometimes the one at the front doing the talking, but he's not exercising any kind of unilateral power and authority over the church. You see this, for instance, in Acts chapter 15. Lord willing, we'll get there someday. But it's the first council of the church. Peter is there and he speaks. But the one who delivers the decisive argument as they're all together and making decisions together, not just one guy, is actually James, the brother of Jesus, that comes up with the answer that everyone likes. But again, that's a long way off. But Peter is the one who preaches to the crowd at Pentecost. I'm only going to look at his introductory statement here, and then Lord willing, next week we'll come back and look at the rest. But this does explain what we're seeing unfolding here at Pentecost. So first, Peter needs to address this rumor that the followers of Jesus are drunk. They're not, and he points out it's only the third hour of the day. This would be 9 a.m. in modern timekeeping. So not only, um, not only are they not that kind of people, but it's way too early in the day for there to be widespread drunkenness. So if that's not what's going on, what is? Well, as he did in chapter 1, Peter explains this, in light of the Old Testament scriptures. And particularly, he quotes from the book of Joel, specifically Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. And he quotes it basically word for word. If you were to flip over to Joel 2 in your English Bibles, it's word for word even in the English translations. There are other times where you see Jesus or the apostles in the New Testament. They'll quote the scriptures and they'll paraphrase or under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they'll quote in a more explanatory way, but this is basically word for word, right out of the text. And it's rather straightforward. What Joel prophesied is exactly what's happening here at Pentecost. Now, Joel prophesied the Spirit being poured out on all flesh not confined to geographic or ethnic Israel. We've already seen this and how the whole dispersion, people from all over have come to Jerusalem to be there when the Spirit is first poured out. This will come to a fuller realization unfolding in Acts as we'll see how the Samaritans and the Gentiles are brought in. But it's already beginning. These dispersion Jews and Gentile proselytes, they're there that day in Jerusalem. Eventually, they'll go back to where they came from. And those who believe, they'll start to preach Christ. They'll start to found churches in the places they go. Now, also in this prophecy, there's this talk of miraculous signs that come with the Spirit's outpouring. Prophecy and visions. For a time in the church... It will be normative for these signs to occur, particularly in lieu of written scriptures. In the early founding time of the church, God will deal more directly with people by prophetic visions and speech. 
The people of God will receive special revelation from God, which is then written down and recorded for us in Scripture. And it is a historical fact that these miraculous sign gifts seem to end. They go away in general and normative use once the writing of Scripture is completed. But at the time of Pentecost, none of the New Testament was written, and so they needed special guidance, special illumination from God to understand what was going on, supernatural help. They would continue to receive this supernatural help from God to know what is true concerning him and what they were to do, which again is recorded for us in Scripture. Now in verse 19, Joel, being quoted by Peter, talks about these great signs. There were great signs and wonders done by Jesus himself. There would be great signs and wonders done in the church. There'd be miracles. There'd be this supernatural use of languages. There'd be deliverances from prison. There'd be healing, raising from the dead. But particularly focused on here in Joel's words are signs of judgment. Talks about blood and fire and vapor of smoke. This is not just any judgment. This is the judgment of the day of the Lord. You can also relate this to how Peter begins to quote in verse 17. He says, It shall come to pass in the last days. See, we talk a lot about the last days in the church. And are we in the last days? Or are the last days coming? Is the world about to end? Well, yeah, we are in the last days, but so was Peter. The last days began then, they continue now, and will continue until Christ returns, whenever that will be. The day of the Lord, in a certain way, has already begun. Peter is marking a turning of the ages, a turning of epochs. Now that Christ has come, Now that the Holy Spirit is poured out, the world is in a new age, a new time of history, the time of Christ and His church. Again, an age that continues until Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, and this world will be no more. There will be that final judgment, but in a certain sense, judgment has already begun. Remember John's prophecy that Jesus would come with his winnowing fork in his hand to separate the wheat from the chaff, the people who are his from those who are condemned. That work in its churchly expression begins here at Pentecost. In fact, you've already seen it in the text. You see those who hear the word and receive it, and then you see those that mock and scoff and are cynical about it. That dividing work, that separating work, that judging work, has already begun. In quoting Joel here, Peter is now declaring that the work of God is not in Judaism, but it is now in Christ and in Christianity. There is this turning over of the ages. God will be known and worshipped in Christ, and salvation is in Him alone. Judgment is coming and is now here. And it is time to repent of sin and call on Christ for salvation. That's the end of the quote in verse 21. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now Peter will go on in this message and 
we'll look at it, Lord willing, next time to explain what all of this means in light of Christ and this pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But for now, it is sufficient to say that Pentecost is a turning of the age, and it's a turning of the age to the age in which we now still live. Christ's winnowing fork is still in his hand. Judgment is still being worked out. This distinction between the city of God and city of man, we've seen it in Genesis. It continues until the end of the world, dividing those who are God's people from those who are not. As Peter said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those who receive and rest upon Christ for forgiveness of sins receive eternal life. They will pass that day of judgment. The judging fire will not consume them. And they also receive the baptism, the filling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which God lives in them and remains in them, places them into his service and guards and keeps them for eternal life. These are the blessings, these are the benefits, these are the promises of the gospel. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Or perish apart from Him in judgment. What was announced at Pentecost is still true now. Even here, even in America, even in South Dakota. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So if you have not done that, this call is to you. Repent of your sins, receive and rest on Christ and be saved or else fall into his judgment. But if you have answered this call, recognize that others still need to know and hear. And so bear the name of Christ to them so that they might call on him and be saved. Because that work begun at Pentecost is still ongoing it continues now, even through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, his people here today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what is revealed to us in it. It's, we are your people. We live in the age of the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, the age where your gospel goes forth through your church. I pray that if there's any here who have not called upon the name of the Lord, that by your Spirit you would work faith in them unto salvation. For those who are your people here today, I pray that we would be faithful to help and support and participate in this work as you have called us to do that we would be faithful to your church, that we would hear your word, that we would learn from your word and apply it to our lives. We pray that by your spirit, you would comfort and help us and strengthen us unto eternal life. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.